Welcome to Everyday Monks, the podcast of St. Benedict's Anglican Church in Rockwall, Texas. This is the Reverend Michael Dean Vincent, and I'm glad you stopped by. Today on episode three, we're going to pick up where we left off at the end of the third century, and we're going to continue to pull the story of the origin of Lent into the fourth century with the conversion of Constantine. In the year 313 AD, the emperors Constantine and Licinius put forth what is called the Edict of Milan. And in the Edict of Milan, we read this. When I, Constantine Augustus, as well as I, Licinius Augustus, fortunately met near Metalonium, or Milan, and were considering everything that pertained to the public welfare and security, we thought that we might grant to the Christians and others full authority to observe that religion which each preferred, whence any divinity whatsoever in the seat of the heavens may be propitious and kindly disposed to us and all who are placed under our rule. Therefore your worship should know that it has pleased us to remove all condition whatsoever, which were in the rescripts formerly given to you officially concerning the Christians, and now any one of these who wishes to observe Christian religion may do so freely and openly without molestation." And thus began one of the most dramatic and important periods of modern history, especially as it pertains to Christianity. And of course, along with this, Constantine himself is converted to Christianity, again beginning at the 4th century. And we also see, at the same time, the decriminalization of Christianity and a dramatic decrease in persecution and martyrdom. So this was a huge worldwide paradigm shift in Christianity and, again, within the whole known world. Now, as time went on, it seems reasonable to think that newness of the Christian situation and the idea of Christ's immediate return would gradually be replaced by a more settled sense of awareness of the Christian experience as a pilgrimage in a still-fallen world, but awaiting its consummation. And I think this partly explains the growing tendency during this time toward Christian asceticism or spiritual practice. We get asceticism from the Greek ascesis. So during this time where it be, seems to be that Christ isn't returning immediately, yet they're still awaiting his return, as time goes on, the shift starts moving towards Christian spirituality and preparing for the Lord's return. And so this emphasis on ascesis or Christian asceticism begins developing from the early centuries and continues throughout the medieval period of the church and even into the present day. Because the church became more and more concerned, again, about preparedness as they were awaiting the return of the bridegroom. Now, in 325 AD, the first gathering of bishops from throughout the known world convened in the city of Nicaea to address several issues of faith and practice. Now, the most important was the confrontation and the refutation of Arianism, who said in a very quippy song, there was a time when Christ was not, and he was preaching heresy. However, the Easter controversy that we discussed and explored in episode two, the Quattro Deciman controversy, 
was finally settled in 325 AD at this Council of Nicaea. Of the church coming to agreement on the observation of Easter, Constantine writes this. At this meeting, the Council of Nicaea, the question concerning the holiest day of Easter was discussed, and it was resolved by the united judgment of all present that this feast ought to be kept by all and in every place on one and the same day. And first of all, it appeared an unworthy thing that in the celebration of the Jews, who have impiously defiled their hands with enormous sin, for we have received from our Savior a different way, and I myself have undertaken that this decision should meet with the approval of your Sadducees in the hope that your wisdom will gladly admit that practice which is observed at once in the city of Rome and in Africa, throughout Italy and in Egypt, with entire unity of judgment. Having arrived at a consensus on the church observing Easter on the same day, the Sunday after the 14th of Nisan, we shouldn't be surprised to see the same council give recognition and authority to what we generally now understand, the tradition of a 40-day Lent prior to Easter. It was here at this ecumenical council that 40 days uh, would represent Lent and was recognized here ecumenically and given authority. And so this widespread development of a 40-day Lent comes probably and most likely from the biblical motif and prevalence of 40 days. And so the council looked at the 40 days, which was actually uh, an approach to Lent that was going on. Some churches were observing 40-day Lent. Some were uh, approaching it with 60, 70, even up to 80 days, as we talked about in episode two, which is where we get kind of the, the remnant of that in our Jessima Sundays. But they landed on 40 days, and again, probably because of the number 40 in Scripture. For instance, the, the flood. The flood lasts for 40 days and nights. The Israelites, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, during which they receive miraculous sustenance before entering the land flowing with milk and honey. And this wandering entrance theme, very important, becomes a primary typology for teaching baptismal candidates in the early church. So the Exodus theme of wandering through the desert, being led by God and prepared to be brought into the promised land to where one would be fed with milk and honey is exactly the type of journey. It was a great motif and still is today for those who are preparing for baptism and confirmation during Lent. So the wandering entrance theme, it's a very important theme in the early church. And milk and honey, by the way, were often administered along with the Holy Communion to the newly baptized. So 40 days is a period of fasting that's very, very common in Scripture. This also adds, I think, to the weight as to why the church landed on 40 days. For instance, Moses fasts twice for 40 days and nights on Mount Sinai, once after receiving the law in Exodus 34, and again, when he discovers the infidelity of the Israelites when they had fashioned the golden calf. And we read of this in Deuteronomy 9. And Elijah. Elijah travels for 40 days and nights without food after slaying the prophets of Baal and then fleeing the wrath of Jezebel. The Ninevites. The Ninevites fast for 40 days to stave off the wrath of God in Jonah chapter 3. 
and of course, Jesus is fasting in the desert for 40 days. Now, after the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, we see the 40-day Lenten season becoming the preferred time of preparing baptismal candidates. Uh, that's when a lot of emphasis is being put on bringing people into the catechumenate who are desiring to be baptized and registering them with the bishop, you know, with a sponsor that would come with them and vouch for the person, and then preparing those that are wanting to be baptized for 40 days prior to be baptized at Easter Vigil. So let's move a little bit further down into the 4th century. I want to talk a little bit about a really important and wonderful book called The Pilgrimage of Egeria. And this is probably written towards the end of the 4th century, maybe around 385 AD. Now, Egeria was a Spanish nun who spent a three-year pilgrimage in the Holy Land, observing the practices of the churches that were under St. Cyril, who is the Bishop of Jerusalem. And notice, right off the bat, she's on a, quote, Christian pilgrimage, end quote. And she writes this, I ought also to describe how those are taught who are baptized at Easter. So she's going to be writing about what she observed and participated in when she gets to the churches under St. Cyril, the Bishop of Jerusalem, during Holy Week and Easter. She continues, The deacon who provides the names of the baptismal candidates gives them before the first day of Lent, and the priest notes down all the names. This is done before the weeks observed here at Lent. When the priest has noted down all the names on the second day of Lent, a chair is placed for the bishop in the center of the great church, the martyrium. And the priest sits here and there, and the clergy all stand. Those baptismal candidates who are qualified are led up one by one, the males with their fathers, the females with their mothers, and then the bishop asks the neighbors of each one separately who enters if he is of good life, if he obeys his parents, whether he's a drunkard or a liar, and also inquires about those vices which are yet graver. And if the bishop finds that he is without reproach from all those present as witnesses of whom he has made inquiry, he marks the name with his own hand. But if he is accused of aught, he bids him go away, saying, Mend your ways, and when you have done so, then come to the front. So he says, making inquiry concerning the men and the women alike. If anyone is a stranger, unless he has the testimony of those who know him, he is not easily admitted to baptism. Now, enrollment, as we read, of approved catechumens would take place at the beginning of Lent, before the first week of Lent. The enrolled catechumenates, as we just read, would have been enrolled, obviously, the first week of Lent. Well, this approved group of catechumens were called the photosomenoi, or those who are coming into the light. Isn't that beautiful imagery? And so the photosomenoi would come before the bishop to be examined, as we read, prior to the enrollment for baptismal preparation. And again, if they were given a good report from their neighbors and with no objection from anybody else, the bishop would personally write their names in a book and listing all those approved to be prepared for baptism over the season of Lent. And these Lenten preparations were seen as entering into conflict with Satan, like Christ in the desert, who confronted the tempter and overcame. And then at Easter Eve, baptisms of the baptized 
When they would come to the font at the Easter Vigil, before being baptized, they would renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. It would be an exorcism. And by faith, they would pledge their allegiance to Christ, entering into his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, I want to jump back to 326 AD. And Helena, this is Constantine's mother, when she made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, she brought great attention in 326 AD to the holy city. And the discovery of the actual cross of Christ and his burial tomb, on these places she had churches built upon these holy sites. Of course, uh, many of us have been able to go and see the wonderful Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which was built by Helena. Now, Holy Week observances first begin to develop under Cyril for the many thousands of Christian pilgrims who would journey to Jerusalem to keep the Christian Passover. So there is a connection between Christian pilgrimage that is happening each year, Christians all over the known empire that are making pilgrimage during Lent or pre-Easter to come and then observe Easter and all of its rites and rituals in the holy city. And it's connected also to St. Cyril's developing further those services and liturgies and times of prayers, etc., that eventually become what we now have in Holy Week. So these heightened and special days of liturgical observance develop, really, to a much more fuller form under Cyril, the Bishop of Jerusalem, from about 349 to about 386 A.D., so now returning to our pilgrim, Egeria, with that in mind, this is what she observed during the Great Week or Holy Week when she was there on her pilgrimage in 385 AD. So the Great Week began on the Saturday morning before Palm Sunday. Saturday afternoon, the church would gather at the tomb where Lazarus was raised and celebrate Holy Communion at that site. Then... Palm Sunday services would be held at the church at the Mount of Olives, and the Christians would process from the Mount of Olives into the holy city carrying palm branches. Can you imagine? And services would be held then on the following Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of Holy Week, each with a certain gospel focus. So to pause for just a second and make a connection to the prayer and worship of our church in the 1928 prayer book tradition, if you turn to page 138 in the Book of Common Prayer, you'll find the prayers or the propers, the prayer, the epistle, and the gospel for a communion to be observed on the Monday, the Tuesday, and the Wednesday before Easter. And of course, we're pulling that from the practice of the early church as we've just seen that was happening under St. Cyril in the 4th century in about 353 AD. So returning to what Egeria observed during, quote, the Great Week or Holy Week. We just mentioned that she would have attended services on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of Holy Week, and the Gospel or the Passion Narrative of Christ would have been the focus. Then on that Thursday... And this, of course, is what would become Maundy Thursday. Then she observed an evening service commemorating the Last Supper. 
and the service took place at the foot of the cross erected on the rock identified as Golgotha. And then Friday, the church again gathered at Golgotha to venerate the cross, the most treasured relic of the Jerusalem church. Of course, this has become now our Good Friday. And then the Paschal Vigil, or the Easter Vigil, began in the evening where all baptismal candidates would be baptized, confirmed, and then immediately receive Holy Communion. And at the same time, we see the Lenten fast becoming a general time, again, of penitence, fasting, and prayer for Christians under church discipline, you know, those who had committed some grievous sin or had been cut off from receiving Holy Communion. It's, it was not just for baptismal candidates, but it was also fasting and prayer to restore those who had sinned against the church and were under discipline. But in time, all Christians, all Christians began to utilize the 40 days of Lent as a time of penance, fasting, and preparation for Easter, not just the catechumenate, not just those who were outside of the church, but everybody within the parish or within the diocese would take the 40 days as a time of penance, fasting, and preparation for Easter, of course, praying for the catechumenate. And so they approached this to cultivate spiritual disciplines or ascetical practice of a more intense nature. And so this is how we see Lent really take the Christian spiritual disciplines or those things of ascesis that are done throughout the whole year but a special emphasis and a heightening of those things were done for 40 days of Lent. So a quick summary. By the end of the 4th century, the church is observing Easter on the Lord's Day. A 40-day Lenten period is also acknowledged and being practiced, and it is the preferred season of the churches to prepare converts for holy baptism. In addition, Christian piety and ascetical practices are developing as well. There's a further emphasis on personal holiness, of walking in a manner worthy of one's calling. And then, of course, we see the development of Holy Week, or the Great Week, as a means of entering more deeply into the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we find also churches throughout Christendom are beginning to emulate the Lenten and Holy Week observances and liturgies of the Jerusalem Church under St. Cyril, Bishop of Jerusalem. So let's continue forward into the 5th century. Now, Lent and Holy Week observations in the 5th century continue to be enriched, but the form stays fairly consistent. So the form doesn't change, although the content and maybe ritual and other things, the accoutrements, we would say, are varying. The Eastern Church, our brothers and sisters in the Eastern Church, well, what they're doing is varying from the Western Church. For instance... Eastern churches in the 7th century increased to an eight-week fast. So this is in the 7th century when the churches determined within the East to actually go to an eight-week fast instead of a six-week fast. Preparations for Lent varied from East to West as well. The West identified the three Sundays before Lent, as we've mentioned already, as preparation weeks or the Jessima Sundays. But the split that occurred in 1054 entrenched these variations along the lines or identity, but all in all, the Lenten season is still very similar in the East and West. At least the heart of it and its intent is very similar, though its length uh, may vary. Well, over these first three episodes of the Origins of Lent, 
we've made quite a journey so far. We began at the beginning with the Jewish background. We went to the Passover, which of course is the result, the feasts put in place after the Exodus event, and also the Sabbath, and we looked at the annual feasts. We also talked about how God ordains time, days, weeks, and seasons, and we saw how fasting uh, and Lent finds its first original connection to Passover and Sabbath. Uh, Then we pulled forward a little bit and we looked at how the Christian Passover or Easter is really the fulfillment of the Old Testament Passover. And we also saw that it is the Christian Paschal Feast. And we also talked about early Christian observance around Easter. And again, made the connection to fasting and repentance connected to Easter. Then in episode two, we looked at some first and second century developments. We uh, looked at the Didache, uh, a very important early church document written as early probably as 50 AD. And we looked within the Didache at how the teaching of the apostles were given to the churches as it related to fasting and prayer, and fasting is related to receiving Holy Communion, and uh, more importantly, fasting as it relates to Christian baptism, which then would have occurred at Easter. Then in third century, we looked at the apostolic tradition of Hippolytus, and again, we see the same instruction, similar to the Didache, on fasting before baptism, and he gets more specific when he talks about the pre-Paschal fast. And remember, we talked about fasting for the three days prior to Easter, especially those who were going to be baptized. And then we got into also the Quattrodecimen controversy, or the controversy over churches that were observing Easter on the 14th of Nisan, according to the Jewish calendar, and other churches uh, that were observing Easter on the Sunday after, or closest to, the 14th of Nisan. And then, of course, today we began in the 4th century, with uh, Constantine and the Edict of Milan. And then we went on a pilgrimage with Egeria uh, to the churches of St. Cyril in Jerusalem uh, at the latter part of the uh, 4th century. And we got a little sneak peek into what the churches were doing in Jerusalem during Holy Week or the Great Week as it relates to the catechumenate, to fasting and baptism as it related to Easter. It's been quite a journey over three episodes. I hope that you're learning quite a bit. I know that I have been. And I just want to invite you to come back for episode four when we take a look at the suffering and salvation motifs within the liturgies of Holy Week. This is Everyday Monks, the podcast of St. Benedict's Anglican Church. And I'm the Reverend Michael Dean Vincent, and we hope to see you next time. God bless you.